All right, good singing this evening. Uh, take your Bibles and turn over with me to Luke, uh, back in Luke from this morning, chapter 8. Luke chapter 8. Luke chapter 8. Uh, chapter 9. <laughs> it says 8 on my, on my page, but... It's nine at the bottom, uh, chapter nine, and um, verse verse nine, uh, seven, eight, and nine. A section from this morning. Now Herod the tetrarch heard of all that was done by him, and he was perplexed because that he was said of some that John was risen from the dead, and of some that Elias had appeared, and others that one of the old prophets was risen again. And Herod said, John have I beheaded, but who is this, of whom I hear such things? And he desired to see him. And the apostles, when they were returned, told him all that they had done. And he took them and went aside privately into a desert place belonging to the city called Bethsaida. Those three verses that uh, introduce us to just a, a little commentary comment before, in between the disciples who have now been sent out uh, as apostles on their preaching ministry two by two, and uh, not to take anything, as Jesus sends them out, before they come back to report to Jesus, um, Luke gives us these three verses to describe what is going on. What was Jesus doing when he sent out his disciples? Well, Luke doesn't tell us. I would assume that um, Jesus is, is taking time of prayer and uh, probably spending time maybe with his family, whom he had some controversy with just a few you know, days before. And, uh, but the, the, it seems silent. Now, these disciple ministry obviously took some time. Uh, they, uh, it, it wasn't like it was just a day or two event. They went throughout all the region of Galilee um, to the lost, uh, lost um, uh, sheep of Israel. And they were preaching and it took some time and then they returned. But Luke gives us a little bit of what's, what's kind of going on, on um, like way down south in the southern portion of where Herod who is the tetrarch of this area of Galilee. He is the ruler. And he has a question about the identity of Jesus. Who is Jesus? Who is this man that's gathering these crowds, that's claiming to be a king, and performing these miracles? And uh, that will come into play later in the chapter when Jesus will turn to his disciples in Caesarea Philippi, and he will say, Whom do men say that I am? Well, they will repeat what Herod hears, and then Jesus then will turn to the disciples and say, Whom do you say that I am? So this chapter is, uh, is an important chapter on the identity of Jesus, because after that event, Jesus will be taken up to the Mount of Transfiguration, and there he will be transfigured into his glory with Moses and Elijah, and the disciples will be stunned at what has happened. And then a voice will come from heaven. This is my son. Hear him. And this all happens within chapter 9. 
But it's interesting, sporadically throughout this chapter, the question of the identity of who Jesus is is very important to Luke. And Luke is describing this as well to his original readers, the Theophilus. Who is Jesus? Who did he claim to be? Who was he? And what is he doing? What is his future? What is his plan? And this gospel is intending to answer those questions. And so right here, Herod is introduced because he's perplexed at the identity of Jesus, what he is, what he is doing. Now, the Tetrarch here that is mentioned is, uh, is his title. He's a secondary ruler. This is the same Herod that's mentioned in Luke chapter 3. Turn back to Luke chapter 3 in verse 1. Luke chapter 3, 1. Now, in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate, being governor of Judea, and Herod being Tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip Tetrarch. And so there, there's given us the, the leaders. Pontius Pilate is, is the governor of Judea. Um, uh, Herod the Tetrarch is governor of Galilee, and Herod's brother Philip is governor of, uh, of the region north of Galilee in that area. So he's introduced in that chapter for us to help that. Now this is not Herod the Great. This is not the one in Matthew chapter 3 that the wise men show up at and say, where is he that's born king of the Jews? This is not the one that built the temple. This is not the one that, that had a 40-year reign over Israel, uh, Palestine, uh, before Jesus was born and up until Jesus was born. That had the little children up to the age of two, I believe it was, in Bethlehem slaughtered. This would be Herod's son. When Herod died in 4 BC, he divided Palestine into four regions and gave, he had four sons and he gave those regions to his four sons. One of his sons was such a blunder at what he did that Rome had so many issues with him that they decided to send a man named Pontius Pilate to Judea over Jerusalem to come in and dethrone him and take over. But the other three boys... Um, we're doing a semi-good job, I guess you'd say, from the Romans' perspective. Philip and um, Antipas, who is this, and uh, one other of Herod's sons that, uh, that just misses my mind at the moment. And, uh, but as now this Herod, he shows up in, John, in Luke chapter 3 again in verse 19. So if you're still in Luke 3, then um, you, can, you can flip down a little bit. Uh, Luke 3, 19 and 20, just two verses. But Herod the Tetrarch, being reproved by him, this is talking about John the Baptist, um, for Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, for all the evils which Herod had done, added yet this above all, that he shut up John in prison. So, in these two verses, it shows us that Herod had a conflict with John the Baptist. And he was the one who was, who was responsible for putting John the Baptist in prison. And um, in, John, in, in Luke chapter 7, Herod, or, uh, John the Baptist had sent some of his disciples to Jesus, asking, are you the one that we're to look for, or is there another? And, and John, at that point, was in prison from Herod, and the reason John was in prison, 
you'll have to find that in Matthew chapter 14, records the events of John's um, imprisonment and death. He had confronted Herod over his adulterous affair with his brother's wife. And the events of Matthew 14 are recorded that Herodias' daughter, um, or Herod's daughter, danced in front of him, pleased him, and he made this foolish vow, anything that you want, I'll give you. And in a drunken stupor, she comes up and says, I want John the Baptist's head on a platter. So Herod orders it to be done, and he kills John the Baptist, and they bring John's head on a platter. So between Luke chapter 7, when Luke sends, uh, when John sends disciples to Jesus asking a question, and these verses in Luke chapter 9, John has been beheaded and killed. And Jesus has been preaching and teaching. No doubt he has received this word. Maybe enough so that maybe Jesus needed that private time to send his disciples out because John the Baptist was his cousin. And such a, there's no man born among women that was greater than John, Jesus said. And then he dies. And I'm sure that that was very personal to the Lord Jesus Christ. And no doubt, as in this story, it was per, uh, personal. Jesus was, was a thorn in Herod's side in Galilee. And the scripture says here, if you look down at, in, in verse 9, uh, in uh, let's see, yeah, verse, verse, um, verse 7, that everything that had been done, he had heard it, it had been reported to him, and Herod was perplexed. He was perplexed. This word perplexed basically means he was deeply troubled. Um, he was confused. Who, who is this? And, and uh, one, this, this, is, uh, this word is used of one who, who tries to find out an answer but can't solve the problem. So he's perplexed about the identity of Jesus. Who's this one that's doing all of these miracles? And some people are saying that it's John the Baptist that has come back to life and is doing these things. Matthew 14 in verse 2 actually indicates that Herod believes this himself. That this is John reincarnate and he's, he's doing these and he's, he's haunting him from the grave. And others are saying that it's Elijah or one of the ancient prophets. But Herod is curious to find out the answer. He's troubled by it. Now, I personally believe that this is guilt. This is, this is Herod is being convicted. John the Baptist is haunting him from the grave, but not in, you know, in spirit, but in truth. All that John had preached, all that John had said, personally telling Herod, and then being responsible for for, for murdering and killing John, Herod, Herod feels guilty about this. His sin is piling up upon him. Warren Rusby points out that Herod's conscience is no doubt convicting him of what he has done. I believe Herod had a big burden of his sin that was hanging over his shoulders and his sin was piling one upon another and Herod felt that guilt and sin and he wanted to see Jesus. Look at the next verse. And it says, and um, uh, in, in, uh, in verse 9, And Herod said, John have I beheaded, but who is this of whom I hear such things? And he desired to see him. 
He desired to see him. In other words, he kept trying to find a time to see Jesus. Now turn over in Luke 23. Luke 23, Herod will show up again in Luke 23 in verse 6. And when Pilate heard of Galilee, this is when Jesus was before Pilate with the Sanhedrin and the religious leaders, found out that Jesus was a Nazarene. He was from Galilee. When Pilate heard of Galilee, he asked whether the man was a Galilean. And as soon as he knew that he belonged unto Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him to Herod because Herod happened to be in town for the Passover, who himself was also in Jerusalem at that time. Notice verse 8. And when Herod saw Jesus, he was exceedingly glad, or exceeding glad, for he was desirous to see him for a long season, because he had heard many things of him, and he hoped to see some miracle done by him. All right? So John adds the commentary that has come from chapter 9. He had been longing to see Jesus, looking for an opportunity to see Jesus. Why? Because Herod wanted a miracle. He wanted a personal magician to perform this miracle for him. When you look at this verse, I, I believe that Herod kept making excuses. Um, you know, obviously Jesus was pretty, in some ways, he was pretty available in his public ministry. Just go follow the crowd. However, no doubt, Herod probably had this giant entourage and, you know, he can't go out with, you know, all of these types of, food, you know, food, food trucks and all these other things that he traveled with. And it just never was convenient enough for him to get out into the desert place, which happened to be where Jesus goes to teach and preach the masses, to the masses. And always traveling with his disciples, probably a little beneath Herod. And so, even though he's curious about this, it never happens until Luke... 23, when Jesus walks in with a crown of thorns on his head and a robe on his back. And if you notice, and I won't go to that, but we were in 20, chapter 23, but he asked him, the scripture says he kept asking him. And the scripture says Jesus didn't answer. So he's been waiting for a long time to see Jesus Perform some miracle. Finally, Jesus is standing in front of him as a prisoner, beaten, bloodied, um, and, and he's standing before Herod, and they're making fun of him, slapping him, and blindfolding him, all the different things they were, they, were, they were doing to him, along with the Roman soldiers in Pilate's hall, and come toward Jesus, and he wants to see some miracle, and Jesus has nothing to say, not one word. Jesus doesn't answer a question. He doesn't answer a word. He doesn't make a statement. He stays there completely silent and quiet. And I think that's kind of interesting. Because Herod had John the Baptist preach to him. Herod had the masses that were coming and giving him reports of what Jesus was preaching and doing. And he kept putting off, putting off, putting off because all he wanted was a show. And Jesus was not anyone's personal showman. And when he finally met Jesus face to face, Jesus had nothing to say to him. And I think that is a point in case about the person whose heart is so hardened that he won't hear the gospel, he won't listen to what he's been given. 
And he is so hard to the truth. He won't answer the truth that has been given to him. John the Baptist was all he needed. The message of the kingdom, repentance, deal with your sin, was all he needed. And when he continued to reject, reject, reject um, Jesus, finally when he met Jesus, Jesus had nothing to say. And I think there's going to be a lot of people who are going to, who are going to make it to the, to the great white throne thinking that they, ha- they were riding on someone else's coattail. They were part of a church, maybe doing a lot of spectacular things, saying, Lord, Lord, But God will have nothing to say to them. There will come a final rejection. You see, if you reject Jesus, then Jesus said, my heavenly Father will reject you. And this is an important case where we see that. We sang this morning, what more can he say than to you he hath said? Interesting question from the song this morning. He has already given us his word. That's all we need. And then from this, the apostles come back in, um, in, in verse, 12, uh, verse 12. And the people, when they had knew it, they followed him. And he received them and spake unto them of the kingdom of God. So here, the apostles come back in verse 10. They report to him, and Jesus takes them aside into desert place. And what we see here is we see the Lord Jesus Christ now is going to become the divine chef. Um, when we first got married, uh, Amber was interested in learning how to, um, how to cook some, some meals and be kind of creative. And I remember our, uh, the manager of our dining hall that I worked for uh, at Maranatha, he bought us, as our wedding gift, he bought us the DVD set of Ming the sous chef. His name is Ming. I don't know how he knew if I could pronounce his but he, he was like one of these best chefs, you know, and had these DVD. And he could make, how to make all of these different things. And we would watch these things, you know, the first year, year of marriage, we would watch these cooking shows. You know, there's all kind of cooking shows now. You know, the Cake Boss and, you know, all these different types of things. And they even got kid cooking shows. Where the kids can compete with one another. And, it, you know, so, you know, like a Martha Stewart or a Paula Dean or somebody like that, that we were watching so we could learn from the master chef. Now, here's a passage in a story where Jesus prepares a meal. Now, the rabbis in the first century had been passing around the the expectation that when the Messiah came to the earth, he would have the ability to bring down manna from heaven. That was one of the rabbis' um, qualifications for accepting the Messiah, is if he could do what Moses did. If he could bring down manna from heaven. Now it's interesting, as Luke records this, all four Gospels record this event. It's the only miracle outside of the resurrection, the death, burial, and resurrection, that is recorded in all four Gospels. Why this one? I mean, what about the walking on the water? Uh, what about um, the healing of the blind man? What about, um, you know, some, some of these others? Even the, the woman who touched the hem of his garment or Jairus. But this story here of the feeding of the 5,000 is the only miracle outside of, of the resurrection and the, the crucifixion that occurs in all four Gospels. And this one is, is unique because of, of the circumstance and the situation that Jesus is going to prepare a meal 
that was so miraculous that stood in the minds of all of the disciples and many of his followers for years to come. And it would be chosen as the one to be put in by the Holy Spirit in the gospel record. And as we see this, the Lord Jesus Christ takes them into a desert place and he provides manna from heaven and meat from heaven. What would it taste like? I mean, the miracle that goes on here, you know the story. I don't have to repeat it here necessarily. He's got two, two fishes, five barley loaves, and he reaches into this basket and he duplicates, he keeps filling the basket fulls. I mean, if you think about what is going on. Now, this is not necessarily just raw fish. It wasn't like this little boy went out to the you know, Sea of Galilee and reached in there and picked it up and put it in his basket in his lunch. I don't think his mom was that cruel. All right? Most commentators would indicate it was some kind of pickled fish. Fish that would have been uh, you know, salted and pickled in some kind of juice or something like that. And then the bread was baked, obviously. And so Jesus is um, reproducing. He's, he's in, his, um, in his divine kitchen. And every time he pulls out, he pulls out a piece of bread that's already cooked. It, 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 all the ingredients, it's already... It's, it's been in the oven, right? The ingredients are all there. The, the, the fish, you know, the, the, the pickled format that it was in, that takes a while. I don't know what it would look like. But, uh, you know, it's just, it, it wasn't like, you know, this was just raw fish and bones and these people are trying to gnaw on it. No, it had been cured, jerkied, pickled. I don't know what it was. There, there's a lot of going on in this in this. A meal that Jesus is preparing for the crowd. And I'm sure every time he reaches in there, the disciples are like, what's, what is, and then they just go and come back and more and more. What, what it would it taste like? Jesus to make your supper. The master chef. I, I wonder if it tasted a little bit like the manna from heaven or the quail that came down. Interesting, in Psalm 78, the nation of Israel cried out to God, asked this question, can God furnish a table in the wilderness? And you remember they tempted God and they limited God by asking that question. And Jesus right here in front of 5,000 men plus women and children in a desert place where it's isolated from everyone else is answering that question. He can, he can, he can. And at the end of the story, 12 baskets of leftovers filled after everyone is stuffed. Luke includes that. All were satisfied. That means it was an all-you-can-eat buffet. You ever been to those fancy restaurants and they come out with a portion on you know, the plate's about this big and they come out with a portion that looked like it came out of a, a teaspoon? And got you a little piece of meat here, and it's got more, you know, more decorations on it than actually food. And you're like, where's the beef? <laughs> it's like, where's the rest? And they bring you like this really nice decorated cheesecake, but it's about that big, you know, and with a little bit, a little bit of ice cream. You say, like, I spent $400 for this, you know, it's like, there's got to be something else, you know. It's like, uh, where's the all you can eat? And here, Jesus. All, some have indicated 15 to 20,000 people. Five barley loaves, two small fishes. 
And in this story, the Lord Jesus Christ is pointing out to the disciples their ultimate dependence upon him. Because he has them first figure out the situation. If you look down in the story, um, obviously the disciples are frustrated about being out here. It's been a weary, it's been a long day in verse 12. They come to Jesus and say, Lord, send them away. Because we're out here, all the multitude, they need to go into the towns and in the countries and lodge and get victuals and, and, and you know, we, have, we don't have anything out here for them. Send them away. We're tired of people. You kind of get this little, they need a little long suffering that we talked about not too long ago. A little bit of patience. I think they've had, they've had enough of people. They were out two by two. Jesus told them that they were going to go, get in a desert place, take some time off. And now all of a sudden, here are 15,000 people and Jesus is preaching and healing people. Getting late in the evening. Everyone's weary. It's time for lunch. I don't know about you, but I get grumpy when I'm hungry. And I think the disciples are grumpy. And Jesus turns around in verse 13 and he said unto them, Give you them to eat. In fact, the Greek is in the emphatic. You give them something to eat. Jesus pointed the responsibility of feeding this mass of crowd to their 12 disciples. There are two options by which they choose from. Number one, they can scan the crowd and see what we have. What did that come up with? Two fish and five barley loaves. I'm out of 10, 15, 20,000 people. Only one lad. John's the one that records that it's a lad. Luke just says they were, it was here. But they scan the crowd. And by the way, here comes a little boy. He says, I've got something. And interesting in the text. And it says, we have no more but five loaves and two fishes. In other words, they, they recognize. Little buddy, you, you better just take this back. This is not going to do anything. I mean, look, look at all these people. I mean, look at, you know, look at Peter. He's starving. He'd whiff, that's just a snack to him. And, and that is, in some way, the way they come to Jesus. Yeah, all we've got. This is a little bit, but what is that among so many, one of the other gospel writers say? The second option is they can look in their wallet, right? When it's time to buy food. Are you going to do? If nobody has anything, are you going to look back and see, all right, you, you got anything for lunch? Okay, let's go to the store. What do we got? And Scripture records here, except we should go and buy meat for all this people. And obviously, Philip being the one, I think it is, I think it's Mark that records that Philip's the one that Jesus kind of says, okay, how do you count all this money? So he's kind of doing all this money, and he comes and says, hey, a whole year's wages is not enough to even buy everything that we need. So they, they recognize, they, they're, you know, they're counting their pennies, and they still come short. So they're short on the crowd by what somebody offered, one small lunch. They're short in their pocketbook. There's no possible way that they're able to feed. That's all their options. And when they come and present what they have found, they are very limited. And so in verse 14, and when they were about 5,000 men, he said to his disciples, you make them sit down. Now, in this phrase, make them sit down or having them sit down, the indication here is he means prepare them to eat. 
The phrase here, to sit down, means to recline at a table. It's the same type of word that was used at the Last Supper where they reclined. They sat down to the table. In other words, he's not telling them just sit and wait. He's telling them, sit them down. Later, he will tell them in just a moment. Put them in groups of 50. He's organizing them for, um, for distribution. All right, 50 over here, 50 over here, 50 over here, 50 over here. There's a 50 over Okay, We got them in groups. We're kind of organized. So we got them in, in like, I don't know if they, if they were kind of sitting around in like, a, you know, a semicircle or, or what they were doing or how they organized it. But the, what Jesus is telling them is he's telling them, prepare them to eat. Can you imagine, you know, 10,000, 15,000 people and Jesus and these 12 disciples are going around telling everybody, now sit down, food's coming. And they said, over here, you know, 50 of you, Jesus said to sit down, recline, set your table up, you know, get all your napkins out and find your utensils. And, and the disciples are, are thinking as they're doing that, you, does that make any sense to you? I mean, and you're trying to figure, figure this out. Right? They're, they're being told to do something that's going to take a little bit of time and they don't have the result. Now, one of the other gospels records that Jesus already knows what he's going to do. But he doesn't tell the disciples that. He just tells them, sit them down, organize them. We're going to have lunch. And the men just obey. Jesus says, you couldn't handle it. I gave you the responsibility. You came up very short. Now let me take charge. And they did so in verse 15. And in verse 16, the scripture says, and he took the five loaves, and the two fishes, and he looked up to heaven he blessed them, he broke, and he gave. The same terminology that Luke will use at the Lord's Supper. He blessed, he broke, and he gave to his disciples. I think this probably is one of the reasons also that it's in all four Gospels because there is a clear indication of, of, of what will happen at the Supper with, the Lord, with the Jesus, the Lord, and the disciples. Here he will provide physical bread for them, but in the upper room he will provide spiritual bread for them. And he broke it and he gave it to them, the disciples, to set before the multitude. And they did eat and were all filled, and there were taken up of fragments the remaining of them twelve baskets. And Luke moves on from this passage to the next section. But don't miss the disciples in this story of their complete inadequacy to the task that was in front of them by themselves. They had to trust the Savior to do it for them. Later on, the disciples would get a big head. And they probably had a big head coming back from the two-by-two two ministry. He was like, oh, did you see me? I cast out seven demons. Oh, I cast out six demons. Can you believe I healed these people and I healed these? And these people followed and they, they became, and they came back and they were all excited. You know, big heads. Because later on, the disciples are starting to say, Lord, uh, you know, uh, look what all I've done to you. I should sit on your right hand and you should sit on the left hand and you could be here. And they started putting each other in categories of, of who was the best, probably even you remember what I used to do and you know what I did and how I healed those people and how I cast out those demons and the Lord Jesus Christ brings them back in and said don't you remember you can do nothing without me and so he brings them to this situation in front of all of these people utterly embarrasses them in some ways because they can't do anything about it you mean you can't you can't produce bread 
I mean, you were doing all those miracles earlier. And you you can't do that. He put them in a situation. They just can't pull it out. They have to rely upon Jesus to do for them what they cannot do for themselves. Teaching them a lesson of utter dependence on the Savior. And he provided. And notice the last phrase. I believe all four Gospels record that the leftovers were 12 baskets filled. Why 12? Some have indicated, as I read this week, some have indicated that's a connection with the 12 tribes of Israel. Jesus offered himself as a Messiah to the nation of Israel. They questioned, can God furnish a table in the wilderness? Jesus is providing manna and he's answered the question. I believe it's more connected to the 12 apostles, the 12 disciples. Showing that Jesus has enough to be able to feed 15,000 people or more, at least 5,000 men, that were probably very hungry at the end of a weary day. And then he goes overboard just to make sure each one of the disciples knowed he had more than enough to feed them and some. That's the super abundant supply of God. He always goes over and above what we ever need. What we ask or think our God can supply all of our needs. And the disciples are going to need that lesson in the days ahead because they will face some situations that they will be utterly helpless in front of. And they will rely upon the graciousness of God to be able to do for them what they cannot do for themselves. And what a lesson for us as well. Um, Our divine chef uh, providing for us what it... One day, I believe the church is going to sit in the marriage supper of the Lamb, and I believe Jesus will serve us. I wonder if he'll serve us fish and bread. Similar with the disciples sitting around in their 12 seats, sitting around on their, on their ruling thrones, and we will partake of, of that type of meal and be able to taste what it's like to be able to eat a meal from the hands of the Savior. Father, I pray as we close this evening, thank you for message tonight. Lord, thank you for supplying all of our needs. Uh, Lord, we've, we've touched this miracle before, I believe a year or so ago, from the book of Mark, and we see it again in Luke. And yet, the, the principle of, of our dependence upon you is, is so vital. Not just for our daily bread, as we thank you when we sit down at our meal and our sit down at our table with our family, and we thank you for the daily bread that you give us but also for our spiritual meat. And John, you will record after this event, you will come to probably this same crowd the next morning and say, I am the bread of life. You always, for your disciples, give them exactly what they need for the task at hand. And sometimes we need to be reminded of how our resources are limited. And when we are given a responsibility and we try to do it ourselves, there, there's no answer to that problem. And Lord, um, thank you for enabling us and supplying our needs and for every task that we have to do, whether it's our work this week or uh, jobs, our family, our relationship, our home, raising children, raising children, um, and, um, uh, or maybe with grandparents or uh, parents taking care of and their uh, um, old age, 
Lord, thank you for the strength that we can do all things through Christ who strengthens us. Just to constantly, on a daily basis, um, come before your table and ask for you to supply for us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thank you, you are dismissed. Thank you.